Blog Talk Radio. Radio Hour, brought to you by the Eastern Airlines Radio Show. We share the stories and memories of the pilots who flew the planes of Pitcairn Aviation, Eastern Air Transport, and Eastern Airlines. My name is Neil Holland, retired Eastern captain and producer of the show, and we hope you will enjoy the stories we bring to you every Thursday at this time. And you'll want to join the conversation, so call us. Join the conversation during the broadcast. Now, let's get the show in the air. Hey, Call in to the show at 
1611. This will put you on a producer's board, and you'll have to do uh, all you have to do is share your comments or join in our discussion is to touch the number one on your smartphone keyboard. That will tell the producer to unmute your phone's microphone. Then just join in the fun. Now we can choose to talk or listen to our host. Now let's go up to uh, Long Island, New York, and Captain Mike Scott. Are you there, Mike? Yeah, Don, thanks. Last week's episode 12, we shared uh, Reaper T stories about Eastern's workhorse of uh, the Martin 404, Captain Dozier, Morpheus, and a very funny halfway around the world in 94 cents. All fun stories to share. Mr. Producer, I understand we will be hearing about perhaps Eastern's most celebrated pilot, Captain Dick Merrill. Would you please share with our listeners just a few of the many stories written about Dick Merrill we might need two or more broadcasts to do justice to with the many thoughts about this famous Eastern pilot. In the next clip, if, if you have the publication, the Repartee, uh, Best of Repartee, it's on page 79 if you want to follow along. Mr. Producer? The Man in Wings of Man in the 1984 issue of Repartee, and it's written by Jack King, biographer. The late Captain Dick Merrill was the most unforgettable character I have ever had the opportunity to know. He was a friend to everyone, regardless of their station in life. Anyone who ever knew him gained not only from his master's skills in aviation, but also from his gentle philosophy of life. Like Will Rogers, Dick never met a person he didn't like, and I'm sure the feeling was mutual. In 1972, I wrote a feature article on Dick for Airline Pilot magazine, and several years after Dick called and asked me to write his book. In writing Wings of Man, I had the privilege of compiling material obtained from interviews and letters from many of his friends. Dick was so modest in talking about himself that it would have been impossible to put the book together without the input from so many willing friends. In the process of writing Wings of Man, my wife and I had a chance to spend quite a bit of time with him, and we made a few interesting observations. Although he was extremely modest in talking about his many accomplishments, Dick really enjoyed all the publicity he received. used to get my name in papers a lot, he told me, but that doesn't mean a thing anymore. You can be the greatest hero today, and in short time, they forget how to spell your name. For example, he said lots of people remember the ping-pong flight, but don't remember that he was a pilot. We also noted that it was becoming more and more difficult to get Dick to smile for a picture. That is, unless Johnny Armstrong was present. Johnny would lean over and whisper something in Dick's ear, and the eyes would sparkle and the grin would spread across his face. Perhaps for the moment, they were back in the stork club, or 21, or sharing a joke about the Sheila the Peeler, Evil Alice, or Messy Tessie. At any rate, Johnny could make him laugh. Although there were extensive delays in getting Dick's book published, I was very pleased that he lived long enough to enjoy the book and the publicity and personal attention it generated for him. Dick always went for the records, and I know he was happy when Aviation Space Writers Association voted his book the best nonfiction aviation book of the year. Dick and the late Arthur Godfrey went were cr- close friends and did a lot of flying together, including a round-the-world flight and a jet commander in 1966. Arthur asked me to delay Dick's book until he found time to write the introduction. It was a long wait, but proved to be well worth the delay. It was a great honor to have known and learned from this exceptional gentleman and famed aviation pioneer. Hopefully, my efforts in writing Wings of Man will help to permanently 
mark his great accomplishments for the heritage of future generations. For those of you not fortunate enough to have known him or those who knew him but have not read the book, I believe you would enjoy learning about or reliving the experiences of one of the great men in aviation who made it all happen. And that was by Jack King, biographer. I first met Jack King in Lakeland, Florida, at the uh, annual Sun and Fun Air Show. And I think we were sitting out on the porch of the QBs, uh, the hangar there, right on the flight line almost there at Linda Airport. And we got to talking, and um, he introduced himself as a writer, and we got to talking about what he wrote. And um, he told me that he had written the book uh, Wings of Man. And we became real good friends from from that time on, and we shared a lot because I think that time I was the editor before Jim Holder uh, of the repartee. But uh, great guy, Jack passed away a few years ago, and I miss sharing uh, emails with him. But uh, a good book, uh, Wings of Man, uh, the story of of a great aviator. Uh, Chuck, what do you got for us? Well, now, here's another story written by famous writer, author, Bob Constantine. Bob was born on November the 4th, 1906, in Washington, the District of Columbia. He was a writer, an actor, and known for the Hoodla Empire, which was in 1952. He also had Babe Ruth story in 1948, 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, which I've read a couple of times, 1944, and he died on September the 25th, 1975, in New York City, New York. Let's listen to Bob's collection, recollection of Dick Morrow. Mr. Producer, would you please? Page 83. Dauntless Dick is Grounded by Bob Constantine in the 1984 issue of Repartee. An Eastern Airlines passenger recently took a look at the trim, gray-haired captain walking up the aisle of an Electra toward the cockpit and said, Holy cow, he must be one of the Wright brothers. The pilot was neither Wilbur nor Orville, but in a sense, almost. He was Dick Merrill, busy with his job of checking out a pilot young enough to be his grandson. Dick, one of the all-time greats of American aviation, is now 67. Eastern makes him a consultant this week, ending a a career in which he logged an incredible 37,000 hours and 8 million miles. Some crazy law is responsible. Merrill told us at a lunch yesterday, I can fly an airplane better today than I could 30 years ago. I took the same physical the other day that I took 30 years ago, and nothing has changed. The kid said to me not long ago, Dick, you old so-and-so, when are you going to quit? I looked at him and said, boy, I'll quit the day I make my first bad approach, and that's not going to be for a long time. But now, well, I'm a consultant. What the hell is a consultant? (laughs) The last of a romantic breed of airmen is thus grounded. Merrill has been in the airline business since shortly after World War I. He and another boy from Granada, Mississippi, picked up a trainer at Jenny for a few hundred dollars, and Dick learned to fly in the first day and started carrying passengers the next day. By 1928, he was flying the mail at night between Atlanta and Richmond in Pitcairn mail wings at 10 cents a mile. It seems like yesterday, he mused, I never had it so good. I made $13,000 a year, three years in a row. There was no tax. I I bought me a new caddy for about $1,700 and had a big apartment in Richmond for $60. You could get a stake this big for a buck. Well, a lot of air has gone past, and since then, everything's bigger, better, and faster, and you can hardly move 
in a cockpit today with all those black boxes telling you what's going on. We flew without anything that like that, and we missed less than the lines do today. Missed approaches, that is. Merrill grew up with the industry. He was one of the first to fly the Ford Trimotor, the two types of Curtis Condors, the Curtis Kingbird, the DC-2, the DC-3, and anything else that came along. Frank Hawks called me up one day and asked me to fly Northrop Gamma to his friend, Sir Herbert Wilkins, Dick recalled. I said, sure. Where's the plane? He said, it's in Kansas City, and I, I was in New York. So I said, okay, now where is Wilkins? Where is Wilkins? Frank said, Tierra del Fuego. I left Kansas in a snowstorm on December 13th and landed four days later in a snowstorm along the Straits of Magellan. In four days, I flew through all seasons, winter, summer, fall, and back into winter. Had he ever been frightened in the air? Not really, Merrill said seriously. I came to the conclusion a long time ago that nothing an airplane could do would hurt me, could hurt me. Eddie, Rick likes to say about me, that's Eddie Rickenbacker, you may not be the best pilot, but you sure are the luckiest. Well, maybe so. I used to laugh at those kids who who tightened up when I took them through a storm and we'd start to toss around. Relax, I'd yell at them. If you were a roller coaster, you'd have to pay for this kind of ride. I only had to jump once, carrying the mail. I couldn't find the ripcord for what seemed like a long time. But I knew all along it was there, and that sooner or later I'd find it. I did, too, and landed on top of a nice soft mountain down in Piedmont country. Uh, what's the best he ever, plane he ever flew? That's easy, Dick said. The Electra by Bob Considine. Uh, editor's note, the above Considine story is reprinted from the New York Journal, American, October 4th, 1961. How about it, Jim Holder? Okay, there were many stories, all true, no doubt, all true, about Dick's favorite male playing friends. Dick had a flying squirrel, and he had a lion, and he shared the open cockpit with him back in the Pecan male wing days. And I've seen pictures. I know it's true. His wife, Toby Wing, was beautiful and talented Hollywood movie star who gave the life of glamour and fame, gave it up just to marry Dick Merrill. She even got a movie producer to star Dick in his own movie called Atlantic Flight. Both Dick Merrill and Jack Lambrey, another Eastern pilot, that was his real-life coronation flight, co-pilot and co-star in the film. Receiving $2,500, and that was big money back then, for their role in this movie. Dick had not taken the fear of filming seriously, but he gladly accepted the windfall. He was a teetotaler in an age when the hard, drinking, fun, loving, aerial adventure tour was seen to be the norm. Now, we can go on and on and on about this man, but let's just hear another story by the pilot over their flying years, senior to Dick, Captain Gene Brown. Mr. Producer, the clip. Okay, but I want to say a, a word or two. Um, the uh, Atlantic Flight movie, if you haven't seen it, just type it in your browser, Atlantic Flight, Dick Merrill movie, and it'll pop up. And, and uh, I had not seen it before. I'd heard about it a lot and uh, in, in stories in the repartee. But uh, I watched it the other day, and it's kind of good. It's he's definitely not an actor; he's definitely um, a pilot. But uh, uh, he, he, and Jack Lambie played himself in the movie too, by the way. So you'll get a kick out of that movie. It's uh, it's on your computer, and just uh, just put Atlantic Flight. It was filmed in 1937, so the quality is not that good, but it's it's not too bad. Okay. And uh, Neil, you did notice his QB wings on his lapel on his uniform, did you not? Yeah. Yep. Sure did. 
Yeah, thanks for reminding me of that. He sure did have that on there. Yes, he did. Yeah, he's a member of the QBs, yeah. Well, here's a story about uh, number two written by number one. So let's hear what uh, Gene Brown has to say about his friend. Number two, as remembered by number one on the seniority list, titled Remembrances of Dick Merrill in the 1984 issue of Repartee. On May 1, 1928, Pitcairn Aviation Incorporated inaugurated the first night airmail route from Atlanta to New York with five mail wings and five pilots. There were no flights on Sundays. Three pilots, pilots that were assigned to the Southern Division or the Atlanta Richmond Division were Johnny Keitel, Sidney Malloy, and yours truly, Gene Brown. Two pilots were assigned to the shorter division from Richmond to New York. They were Ambrose Banks and Vern Treat. There were no reserve pilots. Of course, that meant that when a pilot was off duty, he was also serving as a reserve pilot. About July 10, 1928, Mr. Harold Elliott, later vice president and operations manager, stopped me on the airport in Atlanta, where I was based, and told me that the company was considering plans to hire a reserve pilot and wanted to know if I knew anyone that I would recommend. He said he wouldn't, would be in Atlanta about an hour, and I promised to report any progress by the time he was ready to leave. In my search, I ran into Dick Merrill and asked how he was doing, and as we chatted, I found that he was making $64 per week for flying a daylight mail run from Atlanta New or to New Orleans. So I asked him if he would be interested in a reserve pilot's job with Pitcairn, which would be night flying and paid twice Pitcairn's day rate, all of which was much higher than the pay he was getting from his Gulf St. Tammany day scale. Dick seemed elated, so I told him to come with me and I would introduce him to Harold Elliott. Elliot must have hired him on the spot because Dick was our reserve pilot stationed at Richmond on July 10, 1928. At the rate that we were losing pilots and Pitcairn doubling its number of flights between Atlanta and New York, Dick had a regular run of his own in no time at all. As I recall one night in Richmond, Virginia, I arrived at Bird Field to take my southbound mail wing flight about 11 p.m., the weather was no problem for this flight, and I looked forward to a routine open cockpit mail run to Atlanta. The southbound flight from New York was arriving on time. My ship was gassed, warmed up, and the mail was transferred to my ship. As I swung into my parachute, I noticed the northbound had not arrived, so I asked Harold Elliott about it. His reply was that he did not know. The flight had checked out. In, out of Greensboro on time, and it was already 45 minutes overdue. I suggested that he call Greensboro to see what he could learn. His reply was that he had tried, but, but all New York-Atlanta lines had been cut, and he could not get through to Greensboro. Well, I thought, that is where we will find the northbound flight. So I asked who was flying it. Dick Merrill was his reply. Well, then, I replied, I carry two $75 magnesium flare parachutes equipped. If I see anything that looks as though it is a flight, do you want me to use a flare to ascertain his location? Elliot responded quickly, by all means, he said. I took off from Richmond, but could see nothing pertaining to the missing plane until I reached Amelia, Virginia, emergency field. There I noticed the navigation lights of a plane in the middle of the field. I also saw while circling the emergency field some spotlights pointing up a telephone pole, and men were busy restoring disrupted telephone lines which bordered the landing field. I released one of my parachute flares and landed in the same field. I walked over to the telephone pole to ask about the pilot and was told that he seemed a bit groggy, 
but had walked north to try to find a telephone to call Richmond. I asked the linesman if he could see that phone or use that phone he had hanging on his belt to get me in touch with Richmond. Since his answer was in the positive, I then asked him if he would could connect it to the proper wire and lower the phone down to me so I could make a collect call to Richmond to report the emergency. He was happy to do this for me, and so I put in a long-distance call, collect call to Elliot, who was anxiously awaiting news. I told him that Dick had, had to make a dead stick landing and was okay, but that he had cut all the telephone wires connecting New York and Atlanta on his approach to the field. As I prepared to continue my southbound flight, Dick walked up to me and confirmed the story. His engine had quit, and he had to make a dead stick landing, during which he cut the telephone wires on the approach. I had done all I could to help my friend and fellow pilot, so I took off to complete my trip to Atlanta. This was written by Captain Gene Brown, seniority list number one of his good friend, Dick Merrill, seniority list number two. Some pioneers. Number two. Yeah, Can you imagine flying at night? No instruments. No space. No I can't hear him so well. Hello. 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 We lost them. Okay, I'm here. Can you imagine uh, having someone hang a phone down to you so you could talk? <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you were simulating? Yeah, that's what well, I was simulating. You, you just throw it down now. Yeah, there you go. Well, what did Hooter, Hooterville or something like that on television? Remember, they had to climb up the pole and use the phone. Yeah. That was Eddie Albert was in that movie. I forgot the name of it. Green Acres. Oh, yeah. Green, Green Acres. Acres. Green yeah. Acres. Green Acres. <laughs> yeah. He's one of the hey, divorces. We got uh, Bob Ricketts on with us. Uh, just dropped in to say hello. Hello, Bob. You there? Uh, yes, I'm here enjoying the program um, and hearing the stories. Uh, really brings back some memories. Not that far back. I'm not. I was way, <laughs> way, way, way junior, way junior to that. <laughs> but yeah, yeah it's, just, it's good to hear the old stories. I only saw Dick Merrill one time, and that was in operations uh, in Atlanta at the old Atlanta terminal before we went over to mid terminal and uh, uh, saw Captain Eddie there too. So those are the only two times that I saw anybody of importance, I would say. And that was uh, Dick Merrill. And, and I, now here's a story I want to tell. I took my daughter and my son out to California. We went through Disney world and there they met Chester Universal Studios, um, and uh, and then coming back, we went to get our flight back to Atlanta. I wasn't flying the trip; we were just uh, going out to have some fun. And um, my daughter, uh, she asked if she could go buy some candy while we were waiting in the lobby there to board the flight. I've told this story a couple of times, so I'll I'll pull another Jim Holder on you. If you've heard this, forget it. <laughs> but uh, she didn't have quite enough money, and uh, this fella had given her the dime that she was short. And uh, she came over to me, and I said, well, that cost some more than you had, Shay. And she said, well, that fella over there gave me a dime. That That man over there gave me a dime. That man was Mickey Rooney, by the way. Oh, Mickey wow. Rooney. And then when we came back on the uh, Eastern flight, pass riding in first class, we were in one row behind Toby Wing. And so here my daughter had met 
met Dick, uh, uh, Dick Merrill's wife, Toby, beautiful lady, even at the age that she was then. Mickey Rooney and Chester, whatever his name was, that played Chester in Gunsmoke. Dennis Weaver. And, uh, Dennis, Dennis, Weaver, yeah, yeah. Dennis Weaver, Dennis Weaver. He was the mm-hmm. mayor of Universal, I think. I think they call him the mayor of Universal. But anyhow, that's my story. What do you guys got? Well, I can tell you that I saw Dick Merle and his wife in the old Atlanta airport. This was a long time ago, obviously. And I, and I saw a hus, you know, hustle and bustle over there. I said, what's going on over there? I went over there, and that was Dick and his wife standing there. And I'm proud to tell you that I only had about 25 people between me and them. That's the kind of crowd it was. And I peeked around, and I was a little co-pilot rep, you know, a co-pilot. And I peeked around and actually got up close enough to even see them one. And that's yeah. my story, and I'm sticking good. <laughs> she was beautiful. Sounds uh, good. I got a little story that I had uh, with about Dick Merrill. I, uh, back in the late 70s, when they had the Reaper meeting uh, going on at the Fountain Blue down there, I think it was, in Miami. Mm-hmm. I I escorted my mother, and, uh, of course, uh, my dad was an Eastern pilot, as we've mentioned before, and the, the Ali Femme, I escorted her along with my mother, and he, her she was the widow of Johnny Femme, who was also an Eastern pilot. He was hired in 1939, and I escorted both of them down, to the to the Reaper meeting, and in wherever we were in there, Dick Merrill came walking through, and somewhere along the line, I guess my mom had met him with my father somewhere, so she called him over to introduce me to him, and he just stood there briefly and said hello, nice to meet you, and all that stuff, and then and then he, he continued on, but that was my my episode with Dick Merrill, I got to shake his hand at least. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I got a couple of stories, Neil. Quick one. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Uh, one time uh, I was uh, an agent in Miami, and uh, uh, I was part of the group that uh, the inauguration of the stretch DC-8 China flight from China and Crystal, from uh, Miami to New York. And uh, Dick Merrill was there with uh, our managers, Jack Martin and some other people, and I have pictures of that. Uh, About two years later, when I was in Freeport in the Bahamas, uh, the station manager called me at the hotel and said, uh, was I busy? And I said, well, I'm busy, but I'm not busy. What do you need? And he said, uh, I've got uh, Dick Merrill here with another fella, uh, and they need a ride to the uh, Latayan Beach Hotel. I said, well, I'll come get him and pick him up. And, you know, and I drove over to the airport, and my little uh, mini moke was just kind of like a little, I don't know, Hyundai or whatever that I was driving around the island with, and uh, put him in the back with a couple of bags, and took him over to the Lucayan Beach Hotel. I guess they were looking at property or something. I don't know. But I dropped them off there. They're very nice. Want to know if I could buy me a drink? And I said, I'd love to, but i got to get back to work. So <laughs> that was my story. I would love to have gone with them to have a couple of drinks. But it didn't work out you, that way. But that's my two little things, you know. You know, reading... Uh, uh, the story from the captain to the colonel by Rob, Rob, Robert uh, Serling, who I had in my jump seat, by the way. Um, the um, stories that he wrote in there about Dick Merrill being a gambler, and he was quite good, too, out in Vegas. And uh, also the fact that uh, a lot of very important people, especially in show business and Wall Street and the news media, would only fly uh, if they were going to Miami on a trip that Dick Merrill was flying. So they had their secretaries to call and find out who was on the trip so that they could fly with Dick Merrill when he was flying the Electra back and forth and the DC-7s and Connie's, the Constellations and all. So, um, yeah, what a what a remarkable guy. 
Yes, well, this well, is I Bob guess. And I, I don't have I don't have a story about Dick Merrill, but I do remember as a new high pilot back in early '66. Seems like uh, the vice senior vice president of operations, John Harrington, I believe was his name, was uh, going around giving uh, the new guys some uh, pep talk or whatever. And after the uh, after the program, uh, we all went up to shake his hand, and he was customarily would ask you where you were from. And when I told him I was uh, from Jackson, Tennessee, he said, Jackson, Tennessee. He said, I made my first cross-country automobile ride from Brownsville, Tennessee. It's about 28 miles to Jackson. And that was that was my John Harrington story. <laughs> <laughs> I have a good friend in Jackson, Tennessee. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, uh, Mississippi, uh, uh, Jim was, was – uh, we, we said in one of the stories that he was down in Mississippi when he bought that Jenny with his friend. Uh-huh. And uh, I, Go ahead. You no, know, that's as far as I – I don't think – I don't know where Jake Merrill was from. I don't know where he was born. I thought he was born he up was, in the Richmond oh, I, area. I think for some reason he was born in Iuka, Mississippi. I may be wrong, but I think okay. the northeast corner of Fishamingo County. Oh, okay. I'm pretty sure he's born in Mississippi. All the good Avery Edwards come from Mississippi. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> They're all crop talking dusters. about yourself again? <laughs> yeah. They're all crop no. dusters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've told the story many times. I won't bore you all again, but a guy that landed in the field and uh, his girlfriend were bringing the stuff out turned out to be an eastern captain years and years later uh, I was riding the jump seat from Atlanta down to Atlanta from New York and the captain was that guy from New York uh, New Orleans we talked about it what was his name uh, Justin Griner senior guy no 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 uh, wasn't a Griner Lord, uh- Lloyd Moreau. Moreau. Lloyd Moreau. Lloyd Moreau. Yeah. yeah, he was a captain, and I'm sitting out in the jump seat, and wasn't much talk going on, you know. I don't. I guess maybe they didn't like each other or something. We were climbed out. Nobody said anything. Leveled off, and uh, and I happened to, to work with a girl named Ruby, and she told me about having that relationship with that captain way back when she was a teenager or a young lady. And uh, he turned around his left to me, and I know I've told it before, but y'all bear with me because it's one of my best stories. He turned around <laughs> to me and uh, said, oh, Mississippi, said, uh, a long time ago, he started reminiscing, telling me this story. And I knew this guy named Jimmy Bishop, uh, who was a high school friend, and I knew his wife, I mean his mother, uh, Ruby, worked at World Lines of Music, where I had a Christmas job before I went into pilot training for the Air Force. And uh, he leaned back and turned around talking to me and everything. You know, he was peeling an apple. And he said, Yeah, I had that gal I used to land in a field, and she'd come out with a picnic basket, and her daddy didn't want me, uh, anybody having anything to do with his daughter and everything. And we just, it's a great relationship. And he turned his head back around, and I, I leaned up and I said, Was her name Ruby? And he stiffened up like that, and he turned around real slow and looked at me. And I, to this day, I wished I'd have tapped him on the shoulder and said, hello, Dad. But I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and that is a true story. I mean, every word I've heard. <laughs> I've missed the best opportunity in my entire life to really get yeah. up again like that. Hello, yeah. Dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've walked away from many a many a time that I wish I had said what I thought would yeah. have been appropriate. <laughs> hey, Jim, uh, uh, Bob Ricketts, you said I have a vague remember. I don't know if I got the right guy, or not, but were you the guy on a layover in Raleigh that you and your co-pilot got attacked by some local guys one time? Was that you? Actually, it was in Richmond. That was me. <laughs> well, it's Lisa, North Carolina. And they were still in the attack. Did you end up in the hospital or something, as I recall? No, but uh, the funny part of that story was uh, these guys worked us over pretty good. 
And then I guess the cops, somebody called the cops, and they took wow. off. They could have killed us. But anyway, uh, we get, we had to get off the trip. I mean, I had my one of my eyes was closed from from a punch, and uh, so we did headed back to Atlanta the next day. We had to go and see the chief pilot. When we got home, and I walked in there, and I don't remember who it was. Might have been Paul uh, Kelly. Kelly. Yeah, Paul Kelly. And we walked in. It was summertime, and I had aviator glasses on, and he says, "Well." He said, you don't look too bad. And I said, how about taking a look at this, Paul? And I lifted up my glasses, and he went, ooh. <laughs> 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 I looked like I'd been in a, a you know, a prize fight. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah, that well, was me. Well, well what did happened? that happen? Did they, they, yeah, what happened? Why did they get the fight with you? Well, uh, we had been out to, it was summertime. We'd been out to, to dinner. We'd walked over to uh either a cheese factory or some restaurant, and we were walking back. It was a warm summer evening, and there were a lot of people around. It was just downtown Richmond, mostly black. And, you know, in the in the dim light, my co-pilot was a little bigger than taller than I was, and he, he was prematurely balding, and he had blonde hair too, and I had blonde hair. And so we probably we looked to these guys like a couple of old guys from the, from the rear, and they decided they were going to knock us down and, and roll us. And there was about eight of them, I think. Eight? And uh, so wow. first thing we knew, we got we got hit by one of those uh, bar- barricade things they used from the back, knocked us down. We got up. We got back to back to try to defend ourselves. But there were too many of them. I know the, the first guy that came in on me, he won't ever have any kids. <laughs> but... They got, us down and <laughs> <laughs> they, got us, they got us down and beat us up pretty good before the cops got there. Mm. We, had a, we had a couple of captains uh, and pilots that were beat up. Uh, I think Bob Bruce got beat up yeah. there in Portland in the old Cosmopolitan. Yeah, in Miami, on the, hotel, on the Hotel Marriott on uh, Lejeune Road and, and uh, late at night. He was coming back. From, I think he was in school something. And somebody jumped him, you know, the yeah. outside where you walk the rooms. And right yeah. there at the corner, he showed it to me one time. And they jumped him and uh, beat him up. He took his bill pole and everything. Yeah. There was another guy. mid-80s, I think. Another mm-hmm. guy in mm-hmm. St. Thomas that was attacked there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I remember that. Do any of you remember Curly Thompson? No, Who? I don't recall him. Uh, Curly Thompson, he was a senior captain in Miami. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, Didn't he get killed in the, out in Arizona somewhere or something? Yeah, after he, after he retired, I, I heard his, his son killed him. But the story I was going to tell, he was he was built like a little bull. I mean, he was a pretty stout fellow, and he was pretty full of himself. And he liked to always bet with people about stuff. And he bet, I don't know who the other guy was, but he bet some pilot that he could throw a uh, a jackhammer, you know, a big a big heavy hammer, further than he could. So they made a $100 bet or something. And they went out and he wheels around and lets it go and threw it quite a ways. And this other guy went and got the hammer and he, he tied a rope on it, about a five-foot rope. <laughs> <laughs> he swung it around, and of course he threw it a lot further. So he won the bet. <laughs> well, if I'm not mistaken, he ended up. They never found his body, but they thought he was killed and buried in Arizona and New Mexico or someplace. I don't know mm. if I got the right guy out, but I think I do. I had heard that he was he had been killed. I didn't know any details, but I can yeah. certainly understand somebody wanting to do that. <laughs> yeah, well, they, the story I heard was that they never even found his body, but they found evidence that, you know, that, that, that he had gotten into the wrong people, and they did him in. Yeah, <clears throat> I, ne- I never heard any details. Mm. He was he was a real he was a real uh, character. He he now this is on the ten eleven, and he would not fly above twenty six thousand feet. So oh he my wanted God. to cost the company. He wanted to cost the company so much money they would let him retire. Uh. And, oh uh, my God! Mm-hmm. I was a co-pilot, and I 
course, any time I questioned that, I'd get I'd get chewed out about it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. He, he was a he was a hard hard guy. Does anybody remember Bob Crafts? Oh yeah. Um, R- Richard Crafts. Captain Woodchipper. Woodchipper. Oh, yeah. That's Richard. I, yeah. yeah, Richard Crafts. He, he just got released from prison, didn't he? About a year ago. I don't know. Yeah, I think he did. Oh, golly. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. He served his term. Yeah. Yeah, Woodchipper. His wife was <laughs> we, had, we had another guy, Bob uh uh um, oh, golly, from Washington. What was Jack Wright? Jack Dr. and I Wright. flew a lot. Uh, Doctor Wright. He oh. and I flew a lot of trips together in Washington, and and we checked out about the same time on the seven five seven. He wanted to fly that before retiring, and he was in a class I think ahead of me on that airplane, and and I met him in operations uh, in at uh, Atlanta. He was downstairs and. And um, I had a trip, and I asked him how he liked the airplane. He said, oh, he loved it. And and when he left Eastern, of course, you know, he killed his wife yep. and, mm-hmm. with a hammer and tried to kill mm-hmm. kill her daughter. Oh, yes. She I ran out of the house. Mm-hmm. And, and then they put him in jail, of course, and he died, I think, a few months later in jail. Yeah. And they found out yeah. that he had had a tumor, a brain tumor. Well, he must have had it way back there in the Convair days when I flew with him because he was nutty in a fruitcake. <laughs> he was. He'd put on the doctor's coat and go run around hospital yeah. trying to act like he was a doctor. Yeah. Put a stethoscope around his neck. We were kind of lucky because back in the old days they had a fire axe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the Convairs, yeah, oh, I remember that. Yeah. I think they still have a fire. You know, we we every. I think it, my brother was a pilot with American, and they've got their two or three percenters over there too. That I guess it's the way it is everywhere. But I remember uh, there was a couple of captains in New York that that you know there were a lot of stories about. Well, a lot of fun talking. How you like it, uh, Bob? You ought to come back and visit with us more often. Well, thank you very much, Neil. I enjoyed the invitation, and I enjoyed the chatting with you fellows. I really did enjoy it. Uh, well, I'm don't get off yet. I'm just, I, I'm just saying we need another okay. voice. So you got some good stories, I, I, I see now. You're worth listening to. <laughs> oh, oh I've, got, I've got a lot more than that. <laughs> yeah, you know, there, in, in this business, you meet a lot of different personalities, and uh, it's really yeah. fun to remember some of them. Well, I'll tell you what, one of the best stories I've ever heard was Chuck Albright. Chuck's with us tonight, uh, today, and he tells that story about taxing that airplane with that old woman in the back back there in, yeah. in the laboratory. Oh, that's a classic. Little sleep, oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Does everybody know the story? Yeah, tell no, it again. It's worth it. telling. Telling it. Well, tell it again. as Jim would say, so what? So I was uh, a loving mechanic down in Miami, and, and I was uh, one of the seniors, and they had asked for volunteers to go on taxi and uh, run up and test crews, and uh, 12 of us answered the call. The only click catch was you had to pay extra insurance, and the company wouldn't pay it. So that cost me an extra $27 a month to get off the toolbox and get into airplanes. So one of the times I was my uh, lead man, he says, Chuck, why don't you grab a couple of guys that you know and um, get in the truck and uh, go on over to the uh, concourse in Miami and pick up a 1011 and drive it on over here? I said, sure. So I picked up a couple of guys that I knew had already gone through training class but hadn't got certified with their little certificate from Eastern. But they, you know, they wanted to be on be on a taxi crew. So we got over there and we waited for in the jetway. And um, all the people got off and then the flight crew came off. And um, the last uh, guy to come off was... Um, was a male flight attendant. 
And I uh, said, well, we're here to pick the plane up. Is it ready? Uh, can we shut the doors and stuff? He said, yeah, I've gone through, and um, you're, you, you know, you can have the plane. So I had the, the certificate, so I was in the left seat. And my other two buddies, one was in the right, and the other's the flight engineer thing. So the guy did the flight engineer part. He did the ground stuff and made sure the tractor man was there and all that good stuff, and the headphones were hooked up and made sure the baggage carts were away from the engines and stuff. So we got in, and we get uh, we do our taxi list, just like a pilot does when they start an engine and moved the plane out. We had we had gone to their class. And um, so as they, uh, we pushed it out, and uh, the, uh, they pushed us uh, on the, on the um, I forgot which concourse it was. But anyway, we were, we were facing east. I, I can remember this. And um, I'm getting ready to start the engines. And I hear this little, Tick, 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 tick. Um, I looked at the guy in the first officer's seat, and I said, do you hear something? Is, is something loose in the instrument panel? He said, I don't hear anything, Chuck. So we started to go down the list, but we hadn't started the engine. And all of a sudden, we hear bang, 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 a little higher. So the guy in the flight engineer, he could lean over and open the door. So he did, and there stood a little lady. She couldn't have been five feet tall, because when you look out the the peep um, place on the door, she was below what you could see. You could see the first class, but you couldn't <laughs> see right down on the bottom of the door. And this guy says, "Chuck, stop! Don't don't do anything." I said, "What's wrong? What what happened?" And he says, "Turn around." And I turn around, and here's this lady there. And she says, I said, ma'am, um, where, where, where have you been on the airplane? Oh, I was sitting in the back, and I, I got sleepy, and, and they put some t uh, a, um, a pillow for me and a blanket. Well, it was the last row of a 1011 that have five seats in a row. And if you pull up the handles and, and put some blankets down there, you can actually go to sleep. Because a lot of the flight crews used to do that on when we take an empty plane somewhere. So I said, well, we'll be there in just a few minutes. Go ahead. And uh, I told the guy in an engineer seat, I said, go take her back to the first class right there by the door. So I called the tower and tower. I said, explain the whole story. And he says, don't go anywhere with the airplane. Just stay right there. <laughs> I said, I'm not going anywhere. He says, okay. So we waited a few minutes, and pretty soon the tractor guy comes out with a tow bar, and he hooks up to the airplane and plugs in, and, he's and he says, what's the problem? I said, we still have a passenger on. I want you to very carefully, I'm going to take the brakes off, very carefully take me to the gate to where the jetway is. And so he says, he, what, what, I'll explain it later. So he did. He backed us up just a ways, and then he pulled us into the jetway, and they pulled the jetway up to it and, and stopped, and um, we, we shut everything down. We didn't want anything going because the power was already hooked up from the ground power unit. So I got out of the seat and uh, opened the front door, the left door, and there was a group of people, <laughs> and um, I told the I told the guy in the second second officer seat there. I says, "Why don't you just take the young lady and escort her out to the jetway?" He said, "Fine." So as she comes past me, she says, "Captain, that was a very nice flight. Thank you for bringing me here. I'm going to visit my grandchildren." <laughs> That was what that you know at first I was a little apprehensive, you know, you know how do you explain a passenger and a plane that's just that's totally empty except for the front end front end crew so I finished we'd finished and taxied over to the other side, 
Well, by then, the story was all over the 1011 hangar. <laughs> <laughs> well, we get in the truck and go over. It wasn't, we park wasn't Helen Hayes, the... was it? What's that? It wasn't Helen Hayes, was it? No, it wasn't. I don't I don't even recall her telling us her name um, or anybody else telling us. I know when I got over the hangar, my, my crew, not everybody, but my crew, <laughs> they're all clapping their hands. <laughs> and one guy says, well, Captain, how'd you do? How was the flight? <laughs> Chuck, Chuck, were that you, was, were you uh, That was one of the incidents that happens to mechanics sometimes. Yeah. Another guy had it happen to him in New York. I was we somebody told about the story and it got around and this we were eating lunch one time in the lunch room and guy was sitting at the table and he says you're you're Chuck right and I said yeah he says happened to me in New York same thing I said Mike. yeah I don't know how it happened because that's the last person to get off the airplane was the was the flight attendant and he told me the plane was clear. So hey. yeah, and so we didn't bother to check the rest of the airplane. We just went in and got it because we only had so many hours to fix the airplane. Hey, I got one Mike's more. Got you got question. time for one more story? No, no, I, I got to get off here in a few minutes. Mike's okay. got a question, real, real quick. Mike, There's another day, ahead. another yeah. time. Chuck, if you were you were you with Eastern in 1970? 73. Oh, okay, because there was a little episode in 1970 you might have heard about. It was a trip from a 727 came from New York to uh, to Miami, and it had a show dog in the uh, in the cargo compartment, and it froze. Yes, and I know he, all about and it. The, and the passenger, he got out and he hacked about 18 holes in the side in the back side of the fuselage. <laughs> That's because there was a fire accident in the jetway. Yeah, that's right. The glass and took the fire axe. Do you know we paid that man a hundred thousand dollars in seventy something money for the dog? It was a, yeah. a, a purebred show dog that he takes all over the country, oh, and they, I guess they wanted to shut him up. Well, they put eight. But yeah, put I, heard that, I heard that story. In fact, one of my guys on the ten eleven crew was there when it happened. He was an older, a little older guy than I was. And I said, you got to be kidding me. How did they get a fire axe? He says he went down the jetway and then went down the, the, the stairways on the jetway to the tarmac. He, he didn't go into the airplane. He just started hacking on the outside of the airplane. But he did a lot of damage. Certainly did. Yeah. I got involved with fixing some of that. Most of it was oh, did you? in Miami. But when I got to Kennedy, we had a few other repairs, temporary ones that were put on there. But anyway, it's another long story. Yeah, you get to well, watch. What happens is they put it in that third uh, mail bin and in the back of the airplane. Yeah. It's, it's heated. It's not pressurized. It's nothing. It's for mail. Only the first two uh, cargo compartments are pressurized and heated. A couple of animals have died that way. They put them in the wrong cargo compartment. Yeah, I know. I know about that. Hey, Dorothy. Well, Dale, it's all yours. Well, Dorothy, how about it? What we got coming up here Monday night? Uh, Monday night we have uh, the Eastern Music and History uh, program that we should have. And then, of course, the following week we have our dreams, good and bad. And during a few weeks we have Eastern Music come fly with me. So I think we have... uh, quite a repertoire and uh, please join us very good okay Don take us out of here well it's been a good show you guys looks like it's our time I hear our music playing in the background so we'll see you all next next week at the same time when we continue our trip through the pages of repartee the magazine of the Retired Eastern Pilots Association. And remember, the AL Radio Show, Monday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, when we bring you Episode 462, Eastern Music and History, theme music of the 80s. And by the way, if you haven't visited our website, www.dalradioshow.com, 
you'll find many more great Eastern stories and memories. Now it's time to say so long, Eastern, and so long, Eastern family. We'll see you Monday evening at 7 p.m. We love you, Eastern. We love you, Eastern. Good show, guys. Hey, love you, Eastern. Good show. Good show. And have a great time, guys. Taking you away and leaving me lonely. Silver wings slowly fading out of sight. Slowly fading out of sight. Good show, guys. Thanks a lot. See you. Okay, Neil. See you, Bob. Thank you. Yeah. You bet. Take care.